Gresham College presents the Sir Thomas Gresham Finance Lecture Public Interest versus Private Profits by Mark Hoburn with Julian Anoisi and Professor Michael Manelli. Welcome to uh, our Gresham College event, the Sir Thomas Gresham Lecture here at the Royal College of Surgeons. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Michael Minelli. Um, I'm the Emeritus Professor of Commerce and it's a real de delight to be here at our 12th uh, Sir Thomas Gresham Lecture. Uh, we're very pleased that this uh, 12th lecture on government finance and risk transfer will be given uh, by Mark Hoban, Chairman of Flood Re, and introduced by Julian Anoitzi, Chief Executive of Pool Re, the terrorist reinsurance body. Uh, I'm sure that many of you will recall that this lecture series was started uh, 12 years ago really to help us engage with contemporary issues in finance in the city. And I think it would be difficult uh, to pick something more topical than the private-public benefit of insurance and risk transfer, uh, particularly as we've seen things uh, such as terrorism, such as cyber reinsurance, and Mark today being in charge of dealing with uh, that risk that we saw on our televisions all too, uh, all too clearly uh, a few summers ago, the floods in the West. Now, the order of proceedings tonight will be roughly this. After Julian's introduction, our speaker will set out his thoughts on public interest versus private profits for about 20 to 25 minutes, and then he and I will engage in a 20-minute conversation, which is based upon questions which you, uh, members of the audience, uh, have sent to us over the past couple of months. Uh, although I do point out that our former registrar, Barbara Anderson, once said to a previous speaker about me, while it becomes a friendly and intelligent interview, Professor Minelli is more akin to Jim Naughty than Jeremy Paxman. Uh, anyway, uh, and at the end, uh, I'll get up, obviously, and uh, close, and then there will be a reception where we can all continue the discussion. So it should be a fun evening, uh, and I'm delighted to welcome you here to this early start of the season and an exceedingly topical issue. Uh, and if I may now ask uh, Julian Anoitzi, the chairman, sorry, the CEO of Poolry, uh, to introduce our speaker, Julian. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure that you will remember the awful television images of the Prime Minister in Wellington boots sloshing through puddles in January 2014, declaring that money was no object and declaring government support in an unlimited fashion. For the time being, I'd like to park that image, to which I'll return in a moment. But earlier this week, the great and the good of the insurance industry gathered for their annual conference. I can tell you that there were two main items on the agenda. The first is what has become known as the insurance gap, and that is that how when major catastrophes strike, there is a significant amount of damage that is often uninsured. So if you think back to Katrina Rita Wilmer in the United States, 50% of, of the loss was uninsured. And if you think to the Philippine um, tsunami, 1% of the damage caused was actually insured. The second issue was how the insurance industry could deploy its excess capital to meet the gap by removing from government those liabilities that it has on its balance sheet as a result of the implied liability that is created by that gap, but also as a result of the insurance that it takes on itself. By way of example, 
as Professor Minelli introduced me, terrorism has government backstop in the form of pool reinsurance company. That entity was set up as a result of market failure that ensued when insurers refused to insure damage caused by the IRA as it was no longer an unforeseen event. Nonetheless, since its inception as a public-private partnership between government and the insurance industry, it has paid over £600 million in respect of 13 terrorist attacks and claimed not a penny from the taxpayer. In cyber, pandemic and climate change, to cite just a few perils, the insurance industry has so far been unable to provide a solution as it fears that that systemic kind of risk may put their balance sheets in jeopardy. Only yesterday, Stephen Catlin, a heavyweight of the industry, called for the creation of a state-backed pool for the insurance of cyber before something cataclysmic occurs which threatens both our society and the global economy. Often, in the case of potential catastrophic loss or in the event of market failure, there is scope for government involvement in selected areas of insurance. One mechanism for such government support is the establishment and continuation of a carefully defined public-private partnership. In this way, governments can shift some of their exposure to the private sector. And this year has seen some £1.8 billion of risk transferred from the taxpayer to the private sector in respect of terrorism. And next year, a similar amount will be transferred in the field of flood, as you're about to hear. Ideally, government involvement should be limited to the provision of insurance where risks guaranteed may generate some systemic losses that are too large for the insurance industry to bear or where the cost of such insurance is so great as to create a gap as consumers choose not to buy. This is the very top layer of risk and allows the private sector to assume the remainder itself. Ideally, over time, it should disappear as the commercial market re-emerges and a normalised market begins to function, and therefore removing that liability from the taxpayer once more. In the case of flood, most developed countries have a mechanism for dealing with that peril which requires government support not due to market failure as with terrorism but rather due to the price demanded by insurers for the risk which unlike terrorism or cyber cannot be modeled and therefore cannot be priced accurately and which makes its purchase prohibitive in many cases. So I return to the picture of the Prime Minister in Wellington boots. No government in this day and age has an unlimited checkbook and therefore a model for which the UK does not impose a burden on the taxpayer, has been, devised by, by, <coughs> has been devised, and tonight's speaker is the person designated to implement it. Floodry is a joint industry and government-sponsored scheme designed to enable flood cover to be affordable for those households at highest risk of flooding. It is estimated to benefit 350,000 households who would struggle otherwise to obtain affordably priced flood coverage without a scheme like Floodry. It is due to launch in 2016, and tonight's speaker knows about the importance of delivering value for money to taxpayers. This is why he's the right person to ensure that the launch of the scheme is a success. Mark Hoban began his career in 1985 as a chartered accountant with PwC. In 2001, he became an MP for Fairham, a seat he held until 2015. Between 2010 and 2012, he was the Financial Secretary to the Treasury with responsibility for financial services policy, notably leading the government's banking reforms following the global financial crash. From 2012-13, he was Minister for Employment, and at the election of 2015, he stepped down as an MP and took up a role as a non-executive director at the London Stock Exchange. 
He has now assumed the position as flood, chairman of Floodry, and I'm delighted to welcome him to address us on his experiences so far, as well as on his philosophical question of public interest versus private, po- uh, private profit. Please join me in welcoming Mark Hogan. Julian, thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me to uh, speak here uh, this evening. If I was of a more creative mind than I have, by this point I would come with a joke that in Gresham College, with the fact I work in Gresham Street uh, most of the time, but I've spared you uh, the product of my creativity. Now, there might not be much that a trader from Rhodes in 1000 BC would recognise if he appeared here today. We would recognise an insurance contract to protect him against the loss of cargo. For it was in Rhodes, in the first millennial before Christ, that traders came together to pay a premium. And if their cargo is lost in transit, they will be compensated for their loss. What I think would surprise those traders is that insurance is no longer just a private transaction between the insurer and the insured, but it also has a role to play in delivering public policy objectives. Compulsory third-party motor insurance ensures that the innocent victim of an accident will be compensated for their loss regardless of the means of the driver at fault. The evolution of uh, insurer-funded fire brigades into a comprehensive publicly funded fire service is a sign of how the boundary between public profit, public interest and private profit shift. The public interest in insurance has a number of different expressions. The prudential regulation of insurers uh, provides customers with the reassurance that an insurer will pay out in the event of a loss. Conduct regulation protects the insured when they buy a policy. And whilst the legal framework around disclosure when taking out a policy ensures the insurer has a full picture of the risk that they're taking on. The risk transfer between the insured and the insurer avoids a situation where a consumer looks to the state to compensate them in the event of a loss. The private sector provision of flood cover minimises the risk of that pledge by the Prime Minister being called upon. And the complex interplay of public and private provision of protection against financial consequences of sickness, accidents and death also seek to rebalance personal responsibility, private profit, and public interest. So whilst an insurance contract is an inherently private transaction, there is a strong public interest in the functioning of the insurance market. Where that market doesn't function effectively, then the state can and does intervene to rebalance public interest and private profit, restoring the equilibrium between the insured and the insurer. Now, flood re is a product of the need to rebalance that equilibrium, the equilibrium between householder, insurer, and government. Now, at one level, flood re is simply a monoline reinsurer, reinsuring just one UK pearl. But it is also a product of market changes which led to people being priced out of the insurance or having to accept a five-figure excess from their insurer. So whilst the role and structure and funding of the flood re is unique, its role in rebalancing personal responsibility, 
private profit and public interest is the latest of a number of iterations of insurance over several centuries. I want to explore two areas where that balance between public interest and private profit is vital and where the dynamics have changed. Now, one obviously is going to be flood insurance. The second one, which I want to kick off with, is the welfare state, particularly insuring against the cost of old age or pensions, as we tend to know it. Now, there has been a long-standing public policy goal to provide pensions for older people. Indeed, it was the provision of a state pension that started the welfare state. Uh, Bismarck established a state pension in 1889 as part of his policy of securing power in the face of a more, more articulate and politically powerful working class. Lloyd George started this in the UK in 1908, and the scheme was expanded in 1911 to encompass a wider range of benefits funded through national insurance contributions. The state pension, in effect, insured you against longevity, providing an income if you lived beyond your usual working age. Now, the state pension was never going to be enough to provide an adequate replacement income, so many supplemented with a defined benefit scheme. Again, insurance against longevity with the employer bearing the longevity and investment risk. Now, the demise of the DB schemes disturbed the equilibrium between the individual and their employer, or to put it in more familiar terms, the insurance market, the insured and their insurer. That change in equilibrium created a, a situation where the proportion of people saving for their retirement fell, and the amount that those saved, the amount that people saved did fall too. Now, given that there's a public policy goal of ensuring that people have an adequate income for their retirement, it would hard, be hard for the state to stand by and allow the degradation of state of private pension provision. Now, having seen the pension equilibrium disturbed and recognising the public policy to reverse this, uh, the government implemented the Turner Commission's proposals for auto-enrolment. Now, the demise of DB schemes disturbed the equilibrium for the accumulation phase, that point in people's lives when they build up their savings to provide for their retirement. The 2014 budget disturbed the equilibrium in the decumulation phase, the, stage, the phase when people spend their savings and convert their savings into retirement income. The government's pension freedoms, ending compulsory unitization for all, means that people are no longer required to buy insurance against longevity, i.e. an annuity. Now, running through pensions policy from Bismarck and Lloyd George to today, is a thread about balancing responsibilities of state, business, and individual to deliver the public policy objective of ensuring there's an adequate income for people in their retirement. And as the debate shifts due to economic, social, and demographic changes, then the balance between state, business, and individual shifts too, altering the boundaries between private profit and public interest. So let me return to flood re. It is a further illustration of the shifting of boundaries. At the heart of the challenge around the accessibility and affordability of flood insurance is the understanding of probability and size of loss. Changes in weather patterns, increased density of building, uh, changes in modern farming techniques were all factors that increased their probability, severity and the cost of flooding. 
The increased level of losses would, all other things being equal, simply lead to an increase in the overall level of premiums as risk will be shared across the population as a whole. That risk is pooled. And the equilibrium between private profit and public interest would remain unchanged. But the increase in the level of losses has been coupled with a better understanding of those, where those losses are likely to be. The granularity of data means an insurer can discriminate on grounds of risk and therefore price between neighbours, not just between communities. The, incident, the increased incidence and cost of flooding, together with better and more tailored data, has led to higher premiums and five-figure excesses for those most at risk. It became a matter of public policy to address accessibility and affordability, and Floodery was born. Now, Floodery is a privately funded scheme. No taxpayer's money is involved. And unlike uh, Poolery, there's no government backstop. I'm sorry, Julian, we, out we outrank you when it comes to size of reinsurance program. Ours will come in at about 2.1 billion pounds. So how will Floodery be funded? Firstly, there will be a levy on household insurers of £180 million a year. And then a premium for each policy ceded to us, which is capped uh, based on the council tax band of the house being insured. The relationship between the insurer and their customer remains unchanged. It is insurers who will set the premium. It's insurers who will assess losses, and it is the insurer that will pay the claim. We are there to provide reinsurance. As I mentioned earlier, Floodry is a finite life for 25 years, at which point we will return to risk-reflective pricing. Now, I think implicit in this is that the price of flooded insurance will be affordable as well as risk-reflective. And to do this, there must be a series of steps taken to cut the cost of flood damage. By making individual properties more resilient, you can reduce the cost of flood damage. By strengthening flood defences, you can reduce the incidence and severity of flooding where it happens. By only granting planning permission to developments that don't add to flood risk, or even better, reduce flood risk through design and imaginative use of Section 106 agreements, you can reduce the risk of flooding. So floodery has been designed to deliver one of the government's public policy objectives, the provision of affordable flood cover within household insurance policies in a way that creates no burden on the public purse and does not, through time-limiting floodery, remove the incentive to minimise the cost of flood damage. So my central thesis is this, that insurance has changed from a private contract between the insured and the insurer to, use a, to a socially useful vehicle for allocating risk between insured, the insurer and government. And government, in its widest sense, including regulators, has a stake in the effective functioning of that relationship. Where that relationship is strong, then the role of the state to intervene is limited. Where the balance tilts in favour of the insurer and away from their customer, then the government may intervene to rebalance that relationship to deliver their public policy outcomes by either seeking to reduce the cost for both the insured or the insurer, or simply focusing on reducing the cost of the insurer. Now, the government's reforms to motor insurance have actually led to a win for both the insurer and its customers, 
by reducing the cost of motor insurance claims, we're tackling things like referral fees, we, the insurers have been able to reduce the premiums they charge to their customers. So where do I, as a chair of a public body with a past in government and a future in the insurance industry, draw conclusions about how we shift that balance and what are the factors we need to think about when that balance changes? First thing I would like to say is that the equilibrium between individual responsibility, private profit and public interest does shift. It is dynamic. It can in some cases be a very delicate equilibrium, which can be easily disrupted. Restoring that equilibrium will and can uh, create tensions between government and insurers. And they need a successful relationship to help navigate those tensions and to restore that equilibrium. Let me, think, let me say a little bit about those tensions and how they can evolve. Now, one of the drivers of flood as I've said, is the increasing ability of insurers to tailor pricing to individual circumstances. The use of data enables insurers to price according to risk characteristics, specific to that person or to that house, moving away from pricing for a group of uh, individuals or a group of householders. Now, from an insurer's perspective, this is simply the continuation of centuries-long practice of refining data to improve knowledge of risk to think about the likelihood and scale of losses and to fine-tune pricing to reflect that. And that's been broadly good news for consumers. It stimulated disruption in the market and greater competition. Greater segmentation of insureds is good news if you're a winner. What happens if that refinement means that some people will have to pay materially more for their insurance or excluded from the peace of mind that insurance offers? Now, flood re is in part a response to that process, that, ri that risk creating a pool of uninsured. But what happens when that process is applied more broadly and more and more people are unable to afford or access insurance? Now, flood re points to one way of resolving this, through the creation of a special purpose vehicle to offset the impact of higher prices. But there are other routes available. Insurers could be simply told by government to offer that insurance at a set price, guaranteeing both affordability and accessibility, with the insurer and its shareholders picking up the cost. Or the state could subsidise premiums, or could ask, as the, act as the insurer of last resort, the taxpayer picking up the cost. Now, in a time of austerity with significant pressures on public spending, this is not really a great outcome for government. I'm also concerned that further developments in the application of big data will create further tensions between insurers and government where important public policy goals are at risk. And that will lead government and insurers to work out how best to re-provide insurance to those who would otherwise be uninsurable. Secondly, I think it's important for insurers and government to have a better understanding of the pressures that each faces. I remember as a minister, uh, praising the merits of uh, motor insurance, the competition in motor insurance. And I thought it was great news for customers. But I could see around the room uh, motor insurance executives wincing at the very prospect of either their margins being wafer fit in or completely non-existent. A better understanding of those pressures can lead to better outcomes for both customers and insurers. The work led by the ABI and motor insurers uh, together with ministers, 
to cut the cost of motor claims through tackling referral fees is a good example. Flood Re is another good example of that collaborative approach. But it does come at a price. As I said earlier, Flood Re is part funded by a levy on insurers. But who ultimately picks up that levy? Is it absorbed by the insurers and their shareholders, or is it passed on to consumers through higher premiums? Now, the current economics of household insurance suggests that insurers will have to absorb some or all of that levy at the same time as they're faced with an increase in insurance premium tax. So in trying to rebalance the equilibrium, government needs to understand better the economics of insurance so they engage the pressures that sector is facing and the capacity they, ha they have to bear higher costs. But the insurers also need to remember the government is not hugely interested in profit maximisation. Ministers will not support risk-reflective pricing where this excludes people from insurance, particularly when a social policy goal is at risk. Yes, they want to see a thriving, growing and financially viable sector, but not when it comes to a huge cost to be borne by consumers and therefore voters. So a closer partnership between government and insurers in understanding how to tackle changing market practices and pressures will create mutual benefit. But getting a good outcome isn't necessarily the same as sharing the same values or same goals. Now, to achieve public policy goals, governments can legislate to uh, require people to have particular insurance policies. I mentioned motor insurance earlier, where there's a legal duty on uh, drivers to buy third-party motor insurance, creating a market for insurance. So as a consequence, the main thrust of marketing for the insurance industry is price, brand, and, and creating an attractive animal character, whether it's a meerkat or a bulldog, not on creating demand. Now, this interaction between public interest and private profit clearly benefits insurers. But relying on government to create a market creates a business risk too, as annuity providers found at last year's budget. In the absence of a government requirement to buy an annuity, Insurers will need to think about how they design products that meet customer needs and aspirations, rather than sitting back and waiting for the outcome of someone's savings to default into their own annuity. So my warning to insurers is this. Just because today public policy dictates that consumers are forced to buy a particular product, it might not always be the case. Indeed, the more it appears that a policy isn't meeting the needs of a consumer, then the greater the risk is that the government will intervene to make its purchase voluntary or to affect the terms of trade. Now, the final point I want to make is directed at my former profession. If we want insurers to deliver a public policy priority, then we need a coherent public policy framework. Insurance can help supplement st uh, state welfare provision, but to do so, there has to be clarity and certainty about an individual's uh, entitlement to state benefits to create the demand from consumers for new insurance-based products. Now, when I was in government and afterwards, I lost count of the number of conversations I had about whether there's a suitable insurance policy to pay for the costs of residential and nursing homes. I think one of the barriers to creation of that market was lack of clarity around state provision for those costs. Contrast that with the framework around auto-enrolment, where we've seen the pension sector develop good, low-cost products when there's a great deal of scepticism about their ability and willingness to enter the mass market of auto-enrolment. 
but it goes beyond that. So it requires government to link up policy in different areas. The initiative I referred to earlier on about insurance and cross-governmental approach to motor insurance is a good example of how it can work. When I was at the Treasury, uh, one of the things I recognised when we did uh, arguing about Solvency II with the European Union was we needed to ensure uh, that the rules around the matching adjustment for life insurance companies facilitated the, in the investment by insurers of their assets into long-term projects, a priority that we delivered on. But investment in long-term infrastructure assets uh, requires an insurer to have a need to meet long-term liabilities. Now, why is this too early to foresee the impact of the end of compulsory annuitization? Over time, insurers could have a reduced appetite for long-term infrastructure investment, leaving government with the need to find funding for that investment elsewhere. So joined-up policy between government will help align public policy, private profits, and personal responsibility. So in conclusion, insurance has moved from a private transaction in 1000 BC to a socially useful means of achieving goals for the insured, the insurer, and government. Now, balancing the interests of those three parties requires a common understanding of the equilibrium that's there, but also a common understanding of the threats to that balance and a clear way of restoring that equilibrium when it is disturbed. Achieving that balance has driven insurers and governments closer together, developing an interdependency that which helps create an equilibrium by marrying public interest and private profit. But economic, social, demographic changes can disrupt that equilibrium. And the challenge for insurers and governments alike is what happens to restore that equilibrium when it's disturbed. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.